From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with David Philip Mullins, author of the new novel, The Brightest Place in the World. Writing a novel is, is very much like getting married, right? You fall in love with the with an idea and you start to pursue it, but you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how it's going to turn out. So you kind of make a commitment to, to make it work. But making it work is a process of discovery, you know, just like a marriage is, right? You're always, both people are always changing. You're always learning new things about each other. You don't know what's going to happen in the future, but you sort of will it to work. You, you will it to, to happen. Mullins discusses his upbringing in Nevada and how moving to Nebraska has impacted his life and writing. After a break, stick around for my conversation with David Philip Mullins right here on Riverside Chats. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything. How we work, how we interact, how we move around or don't, and how we deal with being caught up in that change, which is happening really fast. So to help you process it all, we have started a new podcast, a way for you to get the latest news and science on the pandemic. Because we think being informed is the best way to get through this thing. So every weekday, you will hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the virus, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. In about 10 minutes, NPR will give you what you need to know about this fast-moving story. We're calling it Coronavirus Daily. You can find new episodes right here every weekday afternoon. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free! There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with author David Philip Mullins, whose new novel, The Brightest Place in the World, was released on June 3rd. The novel was inspired by the Pepcon disaster in 1988, where Mullins' father worked. The Brightest Place in the World follows the lives of four characters haunted by an industrial disaster as they navigate grief, affairs, love, and despair. The novel is available wherever you buy books. I spoke to author David Philip Mullins via Zoom. Doing this show, I just wanted to start by saying I, I do talk to a lot of people who are producing art that's clearly influenced by a kind of suburban Midwest lifestyle. Uh, and you can see sort of this wry inversion of Nebraska nice. And it's you know, this sort of understated emotional element that usually is captured by, you know, your Alexander Paynes or Kent Harriff. But your new book, The Brightest Places in the World, is not like those. Uh, it is a very different sort of tone and approach. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was not surprised looking at your past to see that you're not someone who's lived in Nebraska your whole life. Uh, I do wonder, do you think, though, do you think, it's, is it seeping into you? Is your next book going to look more like about Schmidt? Uh, you know, it's it's not. Um, well, I, I'd say a couple things. Yeah, I've been in Nebraska for 15 years now. I've been in the Midwest for 17. And I would say the Midwest is seeping into me. I, I love it here. Um, I never expected to live in the Midwest. It, it kind of happened... Um, uh, because I yeah, met my wife in New York, she happened to be from here, and then coincidentally I got a job at Creighton, and so everybody, I really fall in love with the place. Um, that said, uh, it has not really crept into my writing, and in fact, the new book that I'm working on is, it's a pretty big departure from the kind of work I've done in the past. Um, it's a, a rural noir set in northern Nevada, and um, it involves a, a, a kidnapping and a, rab a rabid mountain lion, and uh, militias and uh, you know, a, a mystery and all kinds of uh, stuff that I've, elements of, of narrative that I've never really worked with before. But, but no, it's not set in the Midwest it's, and it's pretty far from anything that like Alexander Payne would have, would have done maybe. <laughs> yeah, so. Well, it does seem like your fiction, whether it's the book or the short story collection is rooted largely in whether it's the West or Southwest. So, I mean, do you feel like that's just where you're comfortable telling stories? 
Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, you know, the setting is so important to me and I always want my work to have a strong sense of place. And it's something that I think about constantly as I'm writing. Um, I really love to to imbue the narrative with uh, with flora and fauna and smells and um, uh, and uh, local local dialects. And so I do a lot of research. You know, I grew up in, in uh, Las Vegas, but I've gone back home to Nevada several times uh, over the, maybe the past 20 years just to do research on the place to kind of remind myself of, you know, what it looks like and feels like and smells like. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think setting tends to inspire most writers. I mean, it certainly inspires me. You know, it, it gives me the desire to write, just give the, the, um, uh, the idea of creating setting really excites me, um, which isn't to say that it's more important to me than plot or character, but it's it's a it's a really big aspect of the writing process for me. Yeah. Well, that makes sense that you're gravitating to noir next, right? I mean, noir is so atmospheric, so based in setting. Yeah, yeah. And it's been really fun writing in that mode, actually. And you're absolutely right. And that's what I'm thinking about constantly as I'm uh, as I'm working on this new book, um, just getting the atmosphere right, getting the, the rhythm and the tone right in the language to create this kind of darkness that I'm shooting for. Yeah, but that all, but for me, that also includes getting the landscape right. So uh, so describing everything as precisely uh, as I can and, and in as much detail as I can. Are you able to do that from Nebraska or do you have to make trips out to some of these places and just be there and soak it all in again? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to go back out to Northern Nevada and do a little research trip. Um, in fact, I had one scheduled for this. I, I wanted to try to do one this summer, but because of the COVID-19 situation, I can't. Um, I, I just, just uh, two weeks ago, I won this grant uh, from the Sustainable Arts Foundation. Um, it's a national grant for $5,000 uh, to do this research. And um, they, you know, they awarded me this money for this trip, and now I can't even take it. So hopefully at some point, once all of this uh, virus stuff passes, I'll be able to do that. But yeah, I, the, the, the new novel is set in this uh, little town called Manhattan, Nevada. And I've never actually been there, but I've done a lot of reading about it. But I'd love to take a road trip out there um, and, uh, and check it out. So when you were a kid though, growing up in Las Vegas, I mean, that's sort of this huge collection of disparate types of cultures, I'm sure. What, what sort of what was influencing you, whether that's writing or film or whatever else it was? Um, you know, you know what influenced me the most is uh, the, the desert landscape. I think when I was a kid, uh, it was a big part of my life. Um, so I grew up in uh, part of my childhood was in Las Vegas proper, and then part was in a town called Henderson, which is basically like Bellevue to Omaha. You know, I mean, it's more or less Las Vegas, but it's kind of just on the outskirts. And uh, when I was living in that part of town, my uh, my neighborhood was a relatively new neighborhood, and the desert was very close by. I mean, it was basically just outside uh, the, um, the little suburb that I lived in. And so I grew up with my friends going out to the desert to play. And, you know, the way kids would go play in the, in the creek here in Dundee, um, we used to go out to the desert and we'd catch uh, snakes and lizards and scorpions and build forts out there and uh, ride our BMX bikes out there. And uh, it, it's funny, at the time, I think I kind of hated it. I thought we lived in this this sort of no man's land, but now in retrospect, I look back on it and uh, you know with uh, with a kind of wistfulness, and I, I I miss the desert a lot, and it really it really um, affects my imagination a lot when I'm writing. You know, a lot of the, the stories in my first collection, my first book, Greetings from Below, um, take place kind of in and around the desert, and um, you know a lot of those those stories stem from uh, memories I have of that place. And yeah, so yeah, so, but I mean, the, the town itself influenced me in various ways, I suppose, you know, the, the strip, the casinos, but not as much as the desert landscape. What kind of writers were you influenced by? Uh, my, you know, my biggest influence is when I was in my 20s, um, and I was really starting to take writing seriously and think of it as a career choice, um, would have been uh, J.D. Salinger, probably the biggest one, uh, Raymond Carver, a uh, writer named Tom Jones, a short story writer. Um, Writer named Charles D'Ambrosio, another guy named Michael Byers. Um, I was influenced a lot by Ann Beatty and Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, you know, more contemporary writers, I'd say, than uh, than writers, you know, from uh, the, the kind of distant past in the Western canon. I, I, I think the, uh, the contemporary um, landscape has influenced me much, much more 
over the years. Um, yeah, especially in kind of the early to mid nineties. Mm. It, yeah. se- it seems like your writing is kind of, especially with the new book, the brightest place in the world. It's almost like a mixture of what would be sort of like high art. Like you've got, it starts with a Sylvia Plath quote who comes yeah. up a lot. Uh, and it seems like some of your influences are more in that vein. And then, you know, more of the dirty crime, sort of like seedy affairs of genre fiction. So, I mean, is that, are you consciously trying to walk a line between those two worlds as you're writing? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I've, I've noticed over the years that a lot of my short stories and then this novel as well include references to literature and include, include references to, oh, I don't know what, you know, what you might pretentiously call high art, I guess, but I, I, I don't do it on purpose. Um, but looking back, I've noticed I have done that a lot. The Sylvia Plath thing, you know, that the, the collection of poems in the novel really just functions as a plot device more than anything. And that's kind of the only reason I, I put it in there. But then um, when I when I finally read a, a full draft of the book um, after I finished it, uh, it occurred to me that that I, I remember it, that that book was a book that my father gave my mother, I think, as an engagement present or and uh, I remember he had inscribed it to her. And so I'm always interested in that sort of thing, you know, when I will sort of subconsciously or unconsciously make use of something um, from my own life mm-hmm. that that, that uh, influences the plot or that um, is attached to a particular character. And I only realized later that it's kind of come from me and that it's come from you know my, my life or my personality or something that I have a deep connection to. I mean, I assume it's probably unavoidable that all fiction in some ways is kind of a dressed up way of writing about you, expressing things that you're thinking about. Uh, do you try to shy away from the autobiographical or, I mean, is it just, you like the mix of it all? I, I really don't try to shy away from it. No, I really enjoy, uh, mixing elements of my life with invention. Um, and I, I think that's how most writers, most fiction writers tend to work. Um, I think even if they don't realize they're doing it, mm-hmm. you know, we, we often think that we're completely inventing a story or a character or a situation. And again, only, only later do we realize, oh, well, there's all these elements from my real life, my own life in there that I didn't realize I was putting in there. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it's kind of, it's impossible to, to escape your personality and your worldview and, um, and your experience and your education and all these things that form who you are when you're writing, it's kind of, it's kind of impossible to push all that aside. It, it, uh, I think it sort of inevitably seeps into the work, but that's a good thing. That's, I think that's what makes any work of fiction, you know, unique and ultimately interesting and, and, um, and hopefully different from other works of fiction that might be in other ways like it, right? You, if there's something of the writer's heart and soul and personality and worldview in there, it kind of gives it its stamp or its trademark. And so you said you when you were in your 20s when you first started to think about writing as a profession or as you started taking it more seriously? Yeah, so uh, I started writing when I was 17, um, when I was a senior in high school. And all through college, you know, I thought about, uh, I mean, I wrote constantly in college and I thought about the idea of, of, um, of pursuing it on a more serious level. But I didn't, I didn't really know how to do that. Uh, when I got out of college and when I was 22, I, I, uh, I knew that if I wanted to do it, I had to probably go to an MFA program. So uh, I applied uh, once to the, the top 10 programs in the country when I was about, I was about 24, and I was rejected by all 10 of them. And I thought, okay, well, I need to, to write a little more and get some more experience under my belt to, to get into a good one. I didn't want to just go to any MFA program. I wanted to go to you know, preferably one of the top five. And so when I was 28, I applied to all 10 of them again. And I forget how many I got into, but I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop. And since it was uh, the number one program, you know, I, I went, I kind of had to go. Yeah. And um, that's, that's really, I guess, when I kind of began what I would think of as my journey um, thinking of writing as a career choice. Mm-hmm. I had published some work before I got to Iowa. I published my first short story in the Wing Review when I was 25. And so that was kind of a, a big milestone for me too. But I was still working a full time, you know, I still had a day job. When I got to Iowa, I quit my day job and, um, and I've been teaching uh, creative writing ever since. So, uh, you know, I'm 46 now. So it's been know what is that 17 18 years now so I, I feel like that's a tough thing a lot of people run into which is you're you know whether in high school or you're in your early 20s and you want to be able to write but you just don't have a whole lot of life experience under your belt and so yeah. I mean was that something for you you just needed to live a little bit more to be able to have that to put into the fiction you know actually I've, I've never thought of it that way the way I think of um, my development in my 20s was not that I needed more life experiences uh, you know I, I tend to think that we have a lot of life experiences even if, even if we think we don't 
Um, you know, I, I tell students a lot, just, just remember your childhood, mind your childhood. Think of stories from when you were a kid, junior high, high school. Um, we, we all have interesting stories that, um, that we can exploit for a work of fiction, even if we don't think we do. So I, I didn't think I needed more experience. Um, I think I needed more training as a writer. Um, you know, I, I think of the craft of writing like any other artistic craft in the sense that it's a, it's a learned process and the way you get better at it is by studying it and by practicing for years and years and years. And I, I think I just wasn't good enough yet. I mean, I had, like I said, I had published some short stories, but I think I got lucky. You know, I, back then I didn't know what made a good short story. I would write tons of them. And then every once in a while I would be able to publish one, but the rest were pretty bad. And it took me years to kind of, be more conscious and deliberate about it and kind of understand how to, how to create a story that's, that's good without it being accidental. And I think that just comes with training and time. So what does make a good short story? Oh man, <laughs> if, if I, if I could, if I could put that into a few, uh, a few words and into a sentence or two, I'd be very wealthy. I think, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, okay. I think what I, what I came to learn over time, is that I, th I think when I, when I began writing stories in my early 20s, I thought that all I had to do was write prose that was elegant and clear and precise and poetic, and then everything else would somehow fall into place. So I didn't think enough about character. I didn't think enough about plot. I didn't think enough about setting. All I was thinking about were the words on the page. And it took me a while to realize that the best short stories, the best novels, are narratives that, that kind of make use of all of these elements at once you know, to, to a very high degree. So prose that's, you know, again, precise, elegant, clear, um, characters that are deep and changing and moving, a, a plot that's, that's compelling, that's engaging, that's exciting. Um, and then again, you know, setting that is, uh, that, um, that, that's textured and real and alive on the page and that um, makes use of verisimilitude that allows it to, to uh, um, to kind of become a character almost in, in the story because it's so real and so believable. You know, narratives that do all of that at once are the best narratives. And it, it, took, it took a very, very long time to learn how to kind of manipulate all those elements um, at the same time. And, you know, and, and of course I'm still learning and, you know, hopefully um, no matter how old you get it, you're, as any kind of an artist, you're still learning and getting better and better. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with author David Philip Mullins, whose new novel, The Brightest Place in the World, is available wherever you get books. What are some of your favorite short stories? I think you know, certainly one of my favorites of all time is J.D. Salinger's uh, short story, A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. That's one that I teach a lot. Um, I think Raymond Carver's story, Cathedral, is just a masterpiece. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, and again, to go back to Tom Jones, um, I think one of my favorite stories, uh, I mean, certainly one of my favorite stories is The Pugilist at Rest, which was uh, one of his first publications. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just here, I'll show you. I'm such a, uh, a Tom Jones fan that I, I've, I've got this, all these New Yorkers from the, the early to mid 90s that I've saved over the years. Whenever he had a story come out, I would pick up the New Yorker and, and keep a copy of it. So I've always been kind of a collector in that regard. I'll save a lot of, uh, I'll save stories and articles and interviews, um, you know, by and about writers that I love and that have inspired me. I'll say I was surprised uh, most, anytime I've interviewed an author on Zoom, I feel like they're always in front of a huge library, basically. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't see that behind you. I'm sure you have one well, somewhere. I've got, I've, you've got books all around this yeah. room. They're just kind of scattered in, in different places, different small bookcases. So wherever you sit, you can grab one really quickly. Yep, yep. I'm kind of yeah. They're all around me here. Yeah. <laughs> so I noticed uh, the brightest place in the world is written in present tense rather than past tense. Why did yep. that seem right for that book? I read it and I, I read the whole draft and I, I I think I remember I at the time I, I remember thinking that I it felt if it, it, it felt a little God, I don't want to put it a little stuffy to me if that makes sense a little stilted. The tone wasn't right. The rhythm wasn't right. Um, it felt slow and, and like it was plodding along to me. And I read it a couple times and I thought, what if I switched to the present tense instead of the past? And that, um, that, that really helped speed up the tempo of the prose. And, um, and it gave it the rhythm I wanted it to have and the tone I wanted it to have. Um, and it gave it an immediacy and kind of an urgency that I think it was lacking at the time. 
Um, it felt, I don't know, it just felt that the, 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 the rhythm and the cadence of the sentences was just off. It felt, it felt confined and claustrophobic and stuffy uh, in the past tense. And I don't know why, I can't explain it. I don't know why that is. This, this happens to me a lot. I'll write a draft of a story in a certain, uh, in a certain tense or in you know, the first or the third or the second person even. And it just doesn't sound right to my ear. Um, you know, I, I write by, I tend to write by ear. It's something I talk a lot about in class, this idea of, of composing a sentence, listening to it, kind of responding to the rhythm and the cadence on the page in, in terms of writing the next sentence. And sometimes a draft just won't sound right. So everything else will be in place. The story will be perfectly fine, structurally speaking. I might like the characters, but it just doesn't sound right to my ear. So then I'll play with tense. I might switch it from the first to the third person, you know, that sort of thing, just to get it to, to sound right. Well, that, that was the other thing I thought was interesting was you've got multiple perspectives, but it's third person. And so it's like that, I don't know if you'd call it third person limited or what exactly, but you, you almost have an omniscient narrator who's jumping, but the chapter itself is what limits how much that chapter knows and how much it can view. So, I mean, how did you land on that as a structure? Yeah, you, you know what? Um, I didn't. I actually didn't want to use an omniscient narration. So uh, I think the way you described it um, initially there is is how I think of it, which is that it's each chapter is told in the limited third person of the close third, but we've got four different points of view. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I think of it as a, a multiple point of view novel as opposed to a novel with a, a third person omniscient narration. Um, yeah, I, you know, it, that was a really, really difficult structure to pull off. I, I would never write a book like that again <laughs> with, with four different points of view. Um, you know, if I, I, I balanced them equally throughout the novel. So we go, you know, from Russell to Emma um, to Simon uh, to Maddie, and then you know back to Russell again, equally throughout the whole book. Um, and that's a that's a tough kind of structure to pull off because you you don't have the freedom um, to to veer away from it, right? Once I mean, once you once you sort of establish that structure for the reader, you you, know, you kind of have to keep the promise of, of, of allowing it to unfold, you know, the whole book to unfold that same way. And so that, that placed certain limitations on the plot that got really frustrating at times. And I, I think, you know, the book took me about, oh, anywhere from maybe six to seven years to write, uh, you know, in total with revision. And a lot of that was just getting the structure right and playing with storyboards and rearranging things because of those four points of view. You said storyboards? Yeah, yeah. So when I got about 100 pages in, I started using storyboards, which I'd, I'd show you if I had them here with me. But um, uh, I took I took giant, um, oh, you know, like uh, 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 pieces of cardboard paper that you'd use for like a science fair project. And um, and I just started mapping out the chapters because I had to see the whole thing at once. It was really hard for me to keep the whole novel in my head because of that that tricky structure. So I would, I would draw squares on the, on the storyboard and just summarize what happens in each chapter so I could see what, it, what I've done and where I kind of needed to go. I did a, a number of those throughout the process. So is it necessary for you to know where it's going for you to write earlier in the book or do you sort of discover it as you go? No, you know, I always discover the story as I go to a certain extent. I mean, I, I, I take a lot of notes. I usually have hundreds of pages of notes um, for, uh, for a novel. This, this one I took probably 200 pages of notes for. The one that I'm working on, I've already got about 100 pages, I think. Um, so I, I, I write down ideas, but I don't know how much of it I'm going to use. I don't usually use very many of those notes. I just have them as on my, you know, on my desk um, as kind of a safety net, but I don't usually look at them while I'm writing. Um, I really believe in the process of discovery and the kind of leap of faith that's required to finish a book. Um, if I, you know, if I knew where it was going, I kind of wouldn't need to write it. Uh, writing a novel is, is very much like getting married, right? You fall in love with the with an idea and you start to pursue it, but you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how it's going to turn out. So you kind of make a commitment to, to make it work. But making it work is a process of discovery, you know, just like a marriage is, right? You're always, both people are always changing. You're always learning new things about each other. You don't know what's going to happen in the future, but you sort of will it to work. You, you will it to, to happen. Um, I, I quote E.L. Doctorow a lot in class. Um, you know, he said uh, famously about writing a novel that uh, it's like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. So you don't have to see to the end of the journey. You kind of just have to have faith that it'll all come together. 
Do you find, as far as your marriage analogy goes, I mean, the, when does the honeymoon period end for you and your relationship with the work in progress? And when does it get tough? Um, I don't think the honeymoon period ever ends, actually. I think if it did, I, I probably wouldn't finish writing the book or the short story or whatever the case may be. I think, you know, as you're writing, you have to think it's the greatest thing that's ever been written. And, and, and that's not about fooling yourself. I mean, you really have to believe like this is really good. And of course, it isn't the greatest thing that's ever been written. But if you don't feel like it is as you're writing it, it's really hard to finish the project. Um, you know, the, there's this, this constant uh, sort of vacillation back and forth for most writers between thinking, you know, you're the most brilliant writer who's ever lived and you're the worst writer who's ever lived. Right. And I think the, the, the process of writing a book or a story is very much about looking at what you wrote the day before and thinking, wow, that's amazing. I got to keep going. And then waking up the next day and looking at it again and going, oh my God, that's horrible. I can't believe I would ever write such a bad sentence or a bad paragraph. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's this back and forth process of those two kind of conflicting emotions and, uh, and feelings. Um, but I, I revise as I go. I revise as I compose. And one of the reasons I do that is that I have to, I have to feel a respect for the work as I'm creating it. So if I, if I just pound out a draft of a story or a chapter and it's really rough and really sloppy, and I look at it the next day, I won't want to write anything else because I just think it's terrible. So I, I compose a sentence. I, I sketch a sentence more than anything. It's not even, you know, there's not punctuation even i'll just throw some words on the screen and then i'll write two or three different versions of it um and then i'll come up with kind of a fourth or fifth and that's sort of my final version and if i don't look at that final version of the sentence and think it's pretty darn good i can't go on to write that next sentence i'm talking today with author david philip mullins about his new novel the brightest place in the world we'll continue the conversation after this quick break right here on riverside chats hello want to be a manchi boy Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like haha ha Check out Munchie Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. Today I'm talking with author David Philip Mullins about his new novel, The Brightest Place in the World, which is available wherever you get books. Well, so I think we've talked probably about, about your craft enough here that it's worth bringing up the excerpt so people listening can hear how it sure. actually has turned out. So Sure, yeah, I'll just read a couple of pages here from, uh, from chapter one. Um, so what's what's happened so far is uh, Russell, one of the main point of view characters, he's been driving he's driving down the interstate on his way home from work uh, at the the tab from the, the tavern where he works as a bartender, and um, and he hears and feels this distant explosion on the outskirts of um, of Las Vegas in the Nevada desert. Uh, so he's driving his car and kind of trying to figure out what's going on. He feels a throb of apprehension. Then the guilty relief that comes whenever catastrophe strikes a remote region of the world. 
that unsavory sense of security brought about by the misfortunes of strangers. Unlike those who might have already perished in the explosions or the ensuing fire, he is still alive. He raises the window and speeds up to 70, tailgating an old Ford Mustang, reasoning that a terrorist's targets would be the MGM or Bellagio or the Venetian, Fremont Street or Nellis Air Force Base, places of size and prominence, not a little known edge of the valley. It's 10.30, a gusty Tuesday in May, and Russell is heading south on 5.15 on his way home from the all or nothing after 12 straight hours tending bar. A shift and a half because money's tight. He's a good deal stoned, as he often is during his drive back from the tavern. Sometimes, as a matter of course, it has, a, it has the opposite effect, making him fearful. It seems to be doing so this morning, for he finds himself concerned about Emma, his wife, who's having brunch with a girlfriend downtown many miles in the other direction. She's perfectly safe. The assumption appeases his fear and he slows the Corolla and merges back into the middle lane. He turned off the radio after the first explosion and now Russell turns it back on, scanning the AM news stations until he hears mention of the fire. The exact location is unknown, a reporter explains in a slow, hardened voice. Somewhere in the desert southeast of Las Vegas, the man says, possibly a chemical plant. Something in his stomach tautens like a cord. The Wepco plant, where his friend Andrew works. It's out that way, just beyond the city. He's known Andrew since middle school, where they shared a homeroom, their friendship a constant for the past 30 years. Russell, an only child, has always thought of him as a brother. He digs around in the console for a tissue, blinking as he steers the Corolla back into the fast lane. His left eye waters when he's anxious, and he lifts his glasses again and dabs at it the reporter's voice turning soft and indistinct, held for Russell in some kind of abeyance, there, not there. The air conditioner whirs and the wind pushes harder at the windshield. Traffic zips along as if nothing has happened. The smoke continues over the mountains, drifting higher into the sky. The plant produces a chemical called ammonium perchlorate, an oxidizer for rocket fuel, though Andrew has no background in chemistry or any other science. He's a maintenance technician and has been with Webco the Western Engineering and Production Company, the past seven or so years. It's among a handful of small of chemical plants in that part of the desert, with their turbines and storage tanks and great warrens of above-ground piping, slender smokestacks aimed like howitzers at the sky, white plumes mingling above. There's a marshmallow factory out there as well, a factory that manufactures an edible product right in the middle of a bunch of chemical plants. Russell can just imagine the range of hazardous substances stored within the confines of such places. What negligent or unscrupulous activity occurs. Not that Andrew himself would ever be responsible. Who knows to what degree their secretions have contaminated the local ecosystem. It was a matter of time, Russell supposes, before something exploded. Thank you for reading that. I, I love that opening. I particularly love how it's clear right away that there's a literal explosion, but it seems like you set up a lot of internal explosions right there in the first few pages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, you know, this confrontation of, I mean, it almost starts like in the first chapter, it's like, okay, this is going to be like a Peter Berg movie or something here, but then it switches gears into more of a, you know, an exploration of grief and all these people sort of confronting the void in their own ways. And I mean, I, I'm definitely a sucker for that kind of fiction. Like, I love, uh, like, I love 2666, The Leftovers, uh, even Moby Dick, which I noticed you had a, an epigraph from in your short story collection. Um, so, I mean, are, are you dry? Are you drawn to fiction like that as well? Just uh, in your personal reading? Yeah, um, I, you know, I really like um, a literary narrative that that does a great job of balancing plot with interiority. Um, I love writing interiority. I love writing the minds of my characters. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy, I think unlike a lot of fiction writers, I enjoy exposition and interiority. Um, I think I have to stop myself from doing it too much because of course that can slow the plot down and get in the way of, of the excitement of dramatic action. Uh, but yeah, certainly in this book, I wanted to start off with kind of a smashing opening where, um, where we've got a lot of dramatic action, a lot of external tension, but then I sort of, you know, I wanted to slowly feed in the internal tension as well and the backstory uh, about uh, uh, you know, an affair that's going on in the novel. And, and then, of course, I, I, I want to feed in the grief and the, um, and the kind of psychological devastation that results from this explosion. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of that was just invented as, as I was going, you know, as I got to know the characters. Um, I didn't know who the characters were when I started writing it. And I 
just sort of slowly started to discover their story as the novel unfolds. And so, I mean, the it's it gets pretty bleak as far as the internal situation. So, I mean, how, the exploration of that was that you did you know how I mean, conflicted a lot of these characters were going to be about who they are, who they want to be. Uh, just sort of like it feels like they get to a point of uh, confronting nihilism and sometimes overtly rejecting it, sometimes kind of accepting it throughout the book. So, I mean, was that something you were starting with, or were you finding that along the way as well? No, you know, I, I didn't start. Uh, writing the characters with the intention of sort of them becoming those people. Um, uh, my father died when I was 20. Uh, so I was fairly young and it, it kind of, you know, obviously changed my life in a lot of ways. And um, I, I don't, it's funny, I don't think consciously about grief, um, but it always manages to find its way into my work. Um, I tend to write a lot about infidelity as well. I, I'm not divorced. I have a very healthy marriage. <laughs> my, wife, my wife and I love each other very much, but I'm, I'm always sort of, uh, kind of curious about and fascinated by marriages that break up and uh, romantic relationships that break up. Uh, there's just something that interests me about romantic attachment um, and then kind of when it goes awry or goes wrong. Um, so that always manages to find its way into, into my work as well. Um, yeah, but I, I wouldn't say the interior lives or the interior conflicts of the novel were really planned in any way. No, I, it, you know, it was more about, um, again, just kind of discovering the characters and their backstories and let, letting them kind of tell me who they were as I created the novel. Um, you know, when I say I write by sound, what I, what I mean more specifically about that is often the sentences that I write will, will actually dictate what happens next in the book and, and who the characters become. Um, so, you know, it might be that a particular sentence, because of the rhythm and the cadence that already exists in the sentence, that sentence requires, let's say, a one-syllable adjective to describe a character's hair. And so I use the word brown or the, or the word short, but I didn't intend that character to have short brown hair, right? It, it was the, the prose that kind of dictated what the character looks like. And I would say the, the, the very same thing about their interior lives. You know, very often the writing itself will dictate who they become because I need a certain number of, number of syllables in the next sentence, as odd as that might sound. So, I mean, you're obviously very conscious about the craft you're very specific about what you're doing but it seems like there's also i mean would you say that there's a therapeutic element of writing about grief and trauma whether i mean i don't know it doesn't sound like it's necessarily pouring in from your life from a day-to-day -day basis but is there a reason why you keep coming back to that in your fiction i don't know you know i don't i don't think of it as being therapeutic it might be on some unconscious or subconscious level um i've never thought as right of writing as any kind of therapy uh the reason i write the reason i love to write um, is I just is that I love playing with words. I love playing with sentences and again with syllables and toying with language uh, to, to make a sentence and a paragraph come together almost like the pieces of a puzzle. Um, there's, a, there's almost a, a mathematical precision to a beautiful sort of well-balanced sentence and that's what I that's what what I enjoy about the writing process. I don't get therapy out of it really. Um, if anything, I <laughs> I find it intensely difficult and it's maddening at times. It's almost the opposite of therapy. I mean, when I leave my desk after a three or four hour writing session, I'm exhausted and I'm I'm frustrated and I'm often very irritated because the sentences aren't as good as I wanted them to be. So if there's anything therapeutic about it, I suppose it's just the finished product. You know, when I finish a story or a novel and it's all come together and I think it's pretty darn good, I can take a deep breath and I feel a great sense of accomplishment. But it doesn't really come from content for me. Um, although, you know, with, with this book, one thing I would say is um, the, my, my father, before he died, he worked for a plant called Pepcon. He was an electrical engineer and he worked for a plant called Pepcon that, that did explode on May 4th, 1988, when I was in eighth grade. And uh, I was on the outskirts of, uh, of Las Vegas in the desert. And it was a really moving event in my life. My father survived it. But um, there was one thing he said to me uh, the night of the explosion that has stuck with me my whole life. And it was the impetus for this entire novel. I had never really seen my dad cry much uh, before, maybe not at all. And I remember he was standing in, the, in his bathroom and he was, well, he'd washed his face and he was standing there looking in the mirror and, um, and he had just survived this horrific explosion. And uh, he'd been in the hospital earlier that day and I came into the bathroom and he was, he was, he had teared up and he looked at me. And so two people had died in the explosion and they were friends of his. And he looked at me and he said, those men didn't have to die. And he just started crying. And um, or continued crying. And that moment has stuck with me for years and years and years. And I always wanted to write about it. 
And so the whole novel kind of grew out of that. Um, and, you know, I created a fictional version of the plant and the explosion. Um, my father isn't anywhere in the book. Uh, and, you know, no characters are based on him. But if there's any kind of therapy that resulted from writing it, it was, you know, I, I suppose working that memory out in my fiction. You know, that line isn't anywhere in the book, but it certainly inspired the whole book. So did you always know this would be your first novel then? Um, I, I, ha I wanted to write about that experience. I tried to write about it in, um, in the short story form several times and kind of failed because it just seemed too big. Um, I always knew it, it, could, it could make for a good conflict or, or, or initiating event, you know, external initiating event in a novel, but I didn't know I'd actually use it, no. Uh, not until I just kind of started toying around with it on, on you know, on the, on the computer screen. Now, I noticed late in the book, there's a reference to the Martin Scorsese film Casino. And I, as I saw that, I was thinking, oh, actually, maybe there are some connections there. Maybe that helped you sort of figure out something with the book. Because it's, you know, similar sort of CD story told from a lot of different people's perspectives. You get their internal lives in it, and they're all kind of digging holes for themselves in Las Vegas and kind of struggling to get out of them. So, I mean, was that a reference point for you? Yeah, uh, Casino is one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I, I might even say my favorite movie ever. I've seen it just dozens of times. Um, when, when my wife and I were on one of our first dates uh, almost 20 years ago, and, and I, I made her, uh, we rented Casino back when you could rent videotapes. And, uh, and we watched it, and I remember she was just, just horrified. She'd never seen it, and she thought it was one of the worst movies she'd ever seen and couldn't believe how much I liked it because it's so incredibly violent. Mm -hmm. But I love that movie. It, uh, it very much portrayed, it very accurately portrays the fabric of the Las Vegas I grew up in in the 70s and 80s. And, um, and so I love it just for the colors and the, um, uh, uh, the cinematography and, and um, you know, the costumes and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I kind of consciously referenced it in, in the book, absolutely. Was that something too, just in terms of the fragmented character-based storytelling? Uh, like, was that also an influence for you? Um, maybe, you know, maybe at an unconscious level. I, I, I don't think I've ever been influenced by Scorsese's movies, although I love his movies. I love his mob movies. I mean, every one of them. Um, I grew up in an Italian-American family. Uh, I have an Irish name, Mullins, but I, I'm half Irish and half Sicilian. My mother's last name is Pellucci, and um, my family has no connection to the mob. But when I watch Scorsese's mob movies, um, you know, for instance, in Goodfellas, when uh, Joe Pesci is eating at his mother's house, that, that famous dinner scene with Robert De Niro, um, it just reminds me of my grandmother and her cooking and, and what her kitchen and her dining room looked like. And so... I, you know, I feel a connection to those movies. I don't think I was consciously influenced by the uh, by uh, uh, by the multiple points of view or the, the kind of fragmented narrative st structure. Yeah, interestingly, Alexander Payne said Casino was the movie that was on his mind the entire time he made Election. And uh, is that right? Yeah, I don't know exactly what the takeaway there is, other than I guess that's how Nebraska natives filter <laughs> Scorsese crime movies. Yeah, yeah. I I thought I thought very much about the movie Casino. In uh, the, I believe it's the sixth chapter of my novel where uh, Russell and Emma are driving in Russell's car downtown and he's going to drop her off for work. And there's a scene where they're driving down Las Vegas Boulevard and, and I, I portray the different motels and the, and the adult video stores and the casinos. Um, you know, Scorsese is just such a master uh, you know, again, of, 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 uh, of getting the, just the fabric of a city or in a, in a place just perfectly right. And I, and I wanted to do that in a very visual kind of cinematic way in that chapter, the way that he often does. I'm talking with author David Philip Mullins about his new novel, The Brightest Place in the World. You can find it wherever you get books, as well as his linked short story collection, Greetings from Below. Here is the rest of our conversation. I was talking with uh, author Amy Bonifons a couple of months ago about I just... I listened to that. That was a great interview. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, what I thought was interesting was just how everybody's trying to make sense of this bizarre current moment we're going through where it's just like all of these cultural things that we would usually write about, you know, whether it's just like people sitting in coffee shops, going to casinos, it's like, you know, we don't know some of it's opening up again, but it's all in a different context. We don't know how different it will be after this. So, I mean, are you trying to make sense of today's world through any of your writing? Are you ready to confront that or try to do anything with it? I don't know that I am. I, you know, I, um, Probably, you know, maybe maybe to my uh, detriment as as a as a fiction writer, I I don't often write about current events. 
And, I, and in fact, I almost consciously avoid them. I like writing about the past, about the distant past. Um, you know, I, I was in, I was, I worked in lower Manhattan during 9-11. I was down there when it happened. I've never written about it for some reason. Um, I, I, I don't know, I was, my life was very much kind of changed like a lot of people's lives by the Obama election, you know, for the better. Uh, I never wrote about that. Um, I don't see myself writing about what's going on right now in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement or the coronavirus. That's kind of up maybe to other kinds of fiction writers to, to deal with. Um, I'm very much influenced by nostalgia and, uh, and again, by place. And those are the things that, that kind of inspire me to write that, you know, the distant past. But I have been talking to writer friends a lot since this has been going on about who will kind of write the first coronavirus novel. And of course now, you know, who will start to write fiction about um, about the, uh, uh, the the political turmoil we're, we're seeing on the streets of America, so I'll be interested to see what other people do with this with this material. Who'd you come up with for who will write the first great coronavirus novel? Oh gosh, maybe uh, oh man, maybe someone like um, oh someone like um, um, I was going to say maybe David Foster Wallace if he were still alive, but he's unfortunately he's gone. Um, maybe someone like Jonathan Safran Foer, if he returns to fiction, he's been doing so much nonfiction right now, but I could see him doing a book uh, inspired by you know, this current situation. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, your experience growing up in Nevada, does that, do you, is there a different way of thinking about your environment with the desert, with the different sorts of just, whether it's dangers or experiences around there that you can bring to Nebraska? I mean, is it, do you find that there's a difference when you come here to the Midwest, as opposed to the, like the way a native Nebraskan might look at the environment around them? I think one, you know, one concern I've always had about the Nevada desert is development. Um, when I was a child, there was just a lot more of it. You know, Las Vegas was a smaller place. And uh, every time I go back, Las Vegas is bigger and bigger and bigger. And the footprint has extended into the desert further and further. And, um, and I think that's a real issue that needs to be uh, dealt with because the, yeah, the, the natural environment is being destroyed, I think, by, by construction and development. Well, so, okay, your, your new book, you said it's a noir. You say, it was, was it set in Arizona or where was it? Oh, it's set in northern Nevada. Nevada so northern it's set okay. uh, kind of just outside Reno in a, um, a town. Well, it's based on it, it, the, the town it's set in. is a fictional town, but it's based on a town called Manhattan, Nevada. That's right. Okay. And so that one, is that, do you anticipate that being another seven, eight year writing journey or? Ah, I hope not. I really hope <laughs> not. Um, you know, the, my first book took me about seven or eight years to write off and on. Second one, about seven years off and on, meaning that I would take big breaks in between for, you know, I, I moved, I had three kids, I, you know, I had to go up for tenure at Creighton. So a lot of, a lot of big breaks to sort of uh, deal with life events, I should say, um, or not deal with, but experience life events. Uh, this one I'm hoping will be much quicker. Um, you know, the other thing too is I, I think when you write a novel, you learn how to write a novel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, though my first collection is they're linked stories and they kind of constitute a novel in stories if you read them chronologically, it wasn't a traditional novel. And this, with this one, The Brightest Place in the World, I really kind of had to write a traditional novel to learn how to do it. I feel much more comfortable dealing with that larger structure now. And um, you know, the first 60 or so pages of the new novel have come together a lot more quickly than the first 60 pages of this one did. Do you see it being a similar length? This, the Bright Place in the World, the, the, the hardcover is about 230 pages. Um, the manuscript was actually more like 300 pages. But, you know, of course, the, the page number um, shrunk when, um, when it went uh, into print. Uh, you know, small, smaller, smaller spacing, smaller print, et cetera. Um, so I think the manuscript uh, of the new one I'm working on will probably be around 225 pages. That's kind of what I've mapped it out to be. I want it to be short. I want it to be really slim, really tight, um, really focused, and I want it to have a, a, a quick, energetic plot. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like that is the noir standard, right? Like, I just read uh, the Maltese Falcon book for the first time a few weeks ago, and it's just like so fast. There's a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you're kind of in that tradition this time? Yeah, that's the kind of book I'm writing. In fact, one of the books that uh, that's really influenced me with this one um, is Winter's Bone. Okay. Uh, the novel Winter's Bone. Um, it, it It's a very different novel than the one I'm writing, but structurally and in terms of the prose and the characters, uh, I, I've really taken um, kind of a lot of lessons from that book. And I think the, the published uh, version of that book is about right at about 200 pages. Well, and so, I mean, that genre itself has its own limitations. You talked about once you found the structure of uh, the brightest place in the world, that it's sort of, 
the limitations were frustrating for you. Do you find that there's a frustration or I've heard some writers talk about once you find the limitations that seem right for your story, that in some ways is liberating because now you know where you can play and where you can't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have a couple of thoughts about that. My, my first is uh, I agree with that sentiment quite a lot. You know, when I think once you figure out what the structure of a work is, um, it, it can feel confining in one sense, but it, it can also be liberating in the sense that, um, now the book starts to sort of create itself and unfold, unfold on its own, right? Um, because you, you've kind of figured out how it works. Mm -hmm. And so the second half of a novel tends to unfold much more quickly than the first half. Um, but, you know, that said, what I'm doing with this new novel, I'm kind of purposely not trying to find a structure. Um, I'm writing with um, uh, multiple points of view again but not with balanced multiple points of view. In fact, one of the points of view is the dominant one, and it's, you know, it's, it's about three-fourths of the book so far. But I'm allowing myself the freedom to jump into the minds of other characters for short sections. Um, but it does not have uh, any kind of identifiable structure yet. And I'm doing that on purpose so, so that I have the freedom to just to go off on tangents, to try things I kind of didn't know I was going to want to try during the writing process, to allow the book to kind of do what it wants to do. And then once I have maybe 225, even maybe even 250 uh, pages, then I'm going to start to shape it. And I'm going to start to kind of mold it like a, like a hunk of clay and, and, and pull pieces out, maybe add to it. I didn't really write this, the brightest place in the world that way. Um, but one of the things I learned about novel writing with this book is how important it is to give yourself the freedom to be able to revise the structure down the road. I think one of the dangers of locking yourself into a structure that's so kind of tight um, is that uh, if there's issues with it after you have a, a completed draft, it's really hard to make changes because you make one little change on page 10 and the ripple effects continue for 200 pages. Whereas if I keep the structure kind of open and loose, I'm hoping in the end when I have to take something out, it won't so significantly affect the rest of it that I've got to do like months of work, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to read that one as well. And uh, just one last question is where should people go to find updates about everything you already have written and then whatever is coming next? Oh, yeah. So uh, my website, davidphilipmullins.com, would have any of that information. Um, I've got um, uh, on the events page all the readings and, uh, and lectures and interviews I'll be giving throughout the summer and the fall. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be updating it with news about new publications. I have, a, I have a short story coming out in the journal Third Coast in, uh, in August, so I'll put that on the website as well. Yeah. Nice. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Tom. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. David Philip Mullen's book, The Brightest Place in the World, following the lives of four characters haunted by an industrial disaster, is available wherever you get books. His collection of linked short stories, Greetings from Below, is also available. Check them out, and if possible, reach out to a local bookseller like The Bookworm for all your literary needs. You can check out our backlog of episodes like the one you've just heard, as well as conversations with actors, filmmakers, politicians, musicians, and authors like David Philip Mullins, Amy Bonifons, and Sally J. Walker on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find announcements about our upcoming shows on social media. Just search for Riverside Chats. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS 91.5 FM Omaha Public Radio and Exorban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Next week, we'll be playing a conversation with filmmaker Tony Bonacci, whose short film The Headliner starred Derek Silkman, another previous guest of the show. And we'll also hear from musician Hector Anchando about what life as a musician has been during COVID-19. Before we go, one last thing I want to play here is I happened to track down Alexander Payne discussing Casino, which was referenced briefly in the interview here. So here's, here's my, uh, my footnote for you. And uh, my own film, Election, not to, I mean, I genuflect before this film, but Election is made by a young guy really in love with Casino, because Casino had just come out. And that visual style and that rhythm uh, had a certain residual influence on how I shot election.
If you want to hear Alexander Payne gush about Casino for a long time, you can search on YouTube for HBO on Cinema, Alexander Payne. All right, that's our show. Thank you for listening. I am Tom Noblock.